Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is David Epstein. He's the author of the New York Times bestsellers Range and the Sports Gene. David, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks so much for having me, Warren. Now, uh, I love the book range, and you kind of make the case there for generalists over specialists and kind of argue that having too narrow of a focus in your career or specializing early can can actually be a disadvantage in the long run. And you, you start with this analogy of Roger Federer versus Tiger Woods. Walk me through the Roger Federer side of it. Yeah. So Roger Federer, when he was a kid, played a whole bunch of different sports. His mom was actually a tennis coach, but declined to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. You know, he played handball, rugby, basketball, volleyball, skateboarding, swimming. I assume soccer since he grew up there. Soccer. That's right. Basketball, skiing. I'm sure I'm like missing one or two. Wrestling. So he was doing this diversity of things. He declined to move up to a higher level when his coaches wanted him to, because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends after practice. And he was not from an early age focused on being the next great. In fact, funny story, when a reporter asked him when he started getting good, what he would, if he ever became a pro, what he would buy with his first hypothetical paycheck, he said a Mercedes and his mother, you know, didn't want him putting all his eggs in that basket, was appalled and asked the reporter if she could listen to the recording. It turned out Roger had said, Mare CDs in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, not a Mercedes. <laughs> and so he ended up participating in multiple sports and more lightly structured or unstructured tennis until years after some of his, his peers were, were doing much more sort of focused, deliberate practice and, and only tennis. I mean, it does seem counterintuitive for people who've grown up with the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour rule of the importance of practice. And a lot of us, we see these like super successful people who really gave up on that optionality early and went all in on a particular thing. Where do you see this kind of dissidence between like what we see and maybe what is actual in practice? Yeah, I think that's, there's a couple important things you get at there. One of which just to mention with Gladwell we became running buddies, like, you know, arguing about this stuff on our own time. And there's a video of us at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Okay. I think I, I conflated the fact that a lot of practice is necessary to become great, which he agrees with. And I agree with, with the idea that that means you should just pick something as early as possible and stick, which he now thinks is false. So I think we actually are very much like in agreement at this point now, but I think you make really interesting points about optionality. And I think that's important. I think we need specialists and generalists, by the way. But I think the danger is in giving up basically like in premature optimization is like, how do you go about giving up that optionality? Because a lot of what you're talking about is maybe don't specialize when you're 10 years old. Obviously, at some point, Federer did specialize in playing tennis. Yeah, Absolutely. Basically, everyone to one degree or another specializes it at some point. And so I think to me, the less marketable, but, but maybe more true subtitle of what my book could have been was sometimes the things you do that will give you a short-term head start can actually undermine your long-term development. Whether that has to do with literally how you learn a skill, how you pick what you're going to focus in on. And so when I think about this trade-off, I think about this research at Harvard called the Dark Horse Project I wrote about that was studying how do people find work with high match quality, meaning that that fits their abilities and interests very well. And a lot of those people were also very financially successful, but the dependent variable was fulfillment. Basically, what those people do is they will pick a path and they'll say like, 
here's who I am right now. Here are my abilities and interests. I'm going to do this, but they're willing to say maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself or my opportunities will have changed. And sometimes early on, they find something that fits really well and they can stick. That did happen in the study, but the large majority was people who did that a number of times and sort of made these opportunistic pivots. So I think it's it's fine to have a long-term goal as long as you don't shut yourself off from making opportunistic pivots since we're not so good at predicting exactly who we or the world will be. One of the other things you talk about is just experts and the idea of expertise. And there's all these studies, the Tetlock study, these other studies where the experts don't do better than just the average smart person. In fact, in many cases, the experts do worse than the average smart person. First of all, that's very counterintuitive. Why is that? And then did they once do better like a hundred years ago, but now the experts are on decline because they're too specialized or so? Or how do you think that is changing over time? That's interesting. I don't totally know the answer to that because this research was a 20-year project. And before that, I don't think there was anything even remotely approaching this rigor. So I think it would be hard to compare what happened before that. I think there might be reason to believe though that they're getting worse in this forecasting. So this was this 20-year study of people making predictions of geopolitical, economic, technological trends and all these things. It involved 83,000 different predictions And it needed that because you had to separate luck from skill, basically, over a really long time period. And again, the people who turned out to be the worst forecasters, as you alluded to, were the people who had spent their entire careers studying one or two problems and came to see the whole world through like one lens or mental model. That didn't mean these people were useless necessarily. Sometimes they dug up important information, but when it came to forecasting, they would bend everything around this very narrow worldview. So they would become more confident and less accurate with experience, which was a really bad combination. I I guess the bad combination for us, good combination for them, because it turned out there was an inverse relationship between fame and accuracy in the study. So the people you see prognosticating on the news are probably like some of them literally scientifically proven to be the worst forecasters in the world, which is kind of funny. Well, sometimes being interesting doesn't mean you're more likely to be correct. And I think from reading this study, actually, that it suggests that some of those really narrow, you know, what Tetlock refers to as hedgehogs, they actually are really good at sounding very authoritative quickly on TV because they always bend everything to a certain set of facts. There's not a lot of like, on the one hand, on the other hand, the best forecasters in this work, Tetlock described them as having dragonfly eyes. So dragonfly's eyes are made of thousands of different lenses, each one of which takes a different picture and then they're synthesized in the dragonfly's brain. And so these people would go in their professional and personal networks and like collect, collect, collect perspectives and treat their own ideas as sort of hypotheses and and look to falsify them. Whereas the hedgehogs were more like, I know it, here's all the facts I know about this thing. And they're just totally authoritative. So I think it makes for entertaining listening, but not accurate prediction, which is troubling. I mean, you could see this even in public life where maybe somebody who's a health expert wasn't the best at creating the COVID policy because they looked at it from a very health-related lens. You know, interestingly, some of the people in Tetlock's work became such good forecasters that they spun it off as its own business. And they were written up in Time Magazine. If you look up eerily accurate predictions in Time Magazine, because they were making so much more accurate predictions about COVID than the people who were officially tasked with making these predictions. And I think what you allude to, there was a little research about this at, at MIT during the pandemic, 
that a lot of the people tasked with making official predictions were looking at things so narrowly through the lens of their discipline, when obviously this was something that affected the economy and society and public health. And there were all these factors that should have been considered. And so when predictions were made as if there was only one dependent variable that you were concerned with, it didn't go that well. And, and by the way, some of those, again, thinking back to Tetlock's work, <laughs> one of the most alarming things to me was the really, really narrow hedgehog forecasters were often, having listened to this podcast, I think there's like a lot of stat heads that listen to it. So I'm okay talking like this. They were like anti-Bayesian. So they would make a prediction, then things would go wrong. And instead of saying, oh, I had a misunderstanding, I'm going to adjust. My priors were wrong. I'm going to adjust in the direction that I went wrong. They will adjust in the wrong direction saying, oh, I nailed this. If only one thing would have gone a little bit different. So they get to this point where they actually update in the wrong direction. Like a justification. <laughs> yeah, which is nuts. And I've seen this from some very, if you follow like certain columnists who make a lot of economic predictions, you actually see this quite regularly where they'll like justify retrospectively predictions they made by saying like, if just this one thing had gone different, or I couldn't have known those people would be so stupid. They justify their, their predictions in weird ways. Or when they say the economists have predicted nine out of the last four recessions or something like that. <laughs> Business prediction on TV like drives me nuts because you'll see some CNN money channel or something. It's like, next up, we're going to have the person who correctly predicted something in the past. And you're like, 10 million people made a prediction about that phenomenon and you're picking like one person. There's a, a British magician named Darren Brown who did a great program. I think you can find it on YouTube showing like why that's so silly, where he basically shows he sends correct horse racing predictions to this, this one woman over and over again. And then she you know makes like 10 predictions in a row. And then they reveal later that he was sending predictions to like a million people and just kept whittling it down to like who was getting the right ones, which is basically what I think is happening on the like business news a lot. Even if you think, let's say the US Supreme Court, okay, well, we've got, you know, nine people, eight of them are former judges, all nine are constitutional scholars. Could we actually have a better court, you think, if some of them were non-lawyers or some of them were politicians or, you know, other things before they became uh, Supreme Court justices? I mean, I think it's good for them, obviously, to have deep knowledge of the law. At the same time, I think it would not be bad for them to be broader. I mean, I think in one of the areas, I was talking to a federal judge about this recently, that judges now have to make so many decisions that involve science. And if they aren't like science curious, again, in, I mentioned in range this research that showed that not science knowledge, but science curiosity really was one of the predictors of people who would sort of make good decisions and come to true conclusions in science. And so I think so many of their decisions intersect with that, that if they're not interested in it, then that's a real problem because they're sort of not going to understand some of their, their decision-making. But I mean, the way the Supreme Court works, it's a little bit to me like when I see on the news and they're you know trawling all of Twitter for who makes the most craziest comment. It's like, you know, we do have a system that's picking people because their judgments are presumably very predictable along party lines. That's probably not what you would do if you were running a business and trying to get together a group of executives who would be good decision-makers, I wouldn't think. I mean, the team of rivals aspect of it is maybe good, but you know, I think there can be be a price to pay for some of that. What do you think? Uh, one thing that I'm always interested about the Supreme Court is while people have a strong ideology and, and many of them are, you might call them hedgehogs, 
they all seem to get along super well. You have these nine people, very, very different people, and they respect each other deeply. Even people from very, very opposite ideologies are very, very close friends, and they go to each other's houses. And you just don't see that as much in public life, except on the Supreme Court. That's right. That's a good point. You know, they're obviously like thoughtful people. They have to work together and and they end up making a lot of decisions together. And some go your way and some don't. And I wonder if that's sort of a good crucible for realizing that like some decisions are going to go your way and some aren't. And by the way, I also think having met a bunch of clerks for federal judges, I think they are able to sort of expand their brains in some ways by having these like really interesting rosters of clerks that come from different places, different persuasions. So I think they get a lot of help and their their clerks are really, really influential and can kind of diversify their view. But I do think it'd be good. You know, I think there's a reason why Nobel laureate scientists are about 22 times more likely to have a hobby unrelated to their work as are their peer scientists. It's like these broad interests are sort of what some researchers call network of enterprise can kind of broaden their decision-making lens, which has been shown in some research, really interesting paper on this by a guy named Rick Larrick, that broadening the decision-making lens helps you avoid, to some degree, some of the typical cognitive biases in decision-making, like availability bias, where you base your judgments on like the first dramatic example of something that jumps to mind, which turns out to be like a really bad way to make decisions. Interesting. Tyler Cowen has this observation that he thinks generalists are actually the most specialized people because they can kind of do anything because they can't do anything except they can make observations. So they're actually good at making these observations. He also thinks there's a difference between a generalist and let's say a polymath or say, have you thought about that? Yeah. And that's interesting about Tyler. He shows up in things I think related to this conversation a bunch of times. Like he wrote this article about how the job that most people will have in the future is marketing. I don't know that he thinks that's a good thing, but that's what he predicts, which is a pretty general you know, communications job. And he's also, by the way, been in response to some work done by Steve Levitt said, maybe this was in the CNN article where he said, if you're thinking about quitting your job, you should. It's probably too late. So he's like an, an advocate of pivoting, I think. But that distinction between generalist and polymath it's semantic to some degree. I'll be the first person to say like in range, do I know exactly what a generalist is? No. And in fact, it's operationalized differently in different areas of research. So in some areas of research, it can be sort of pinned down in a way. When I was writing about some of the patenting research, there, generalists, specialists, and polymaths are sometimes characterized by the number of different tech classes that they have done work in as classified by the patent office. Whereas in like, research in comic books, it's classified by the number of different genres someone has worked in. So it's operationalized in all these different ways, depending on the area of research. But I think intuitively, the generalist is someone who has gone broad, but not particularly deep, where a polymath is someone who has this wide array of interests, but will kind of dive deep and come up and dive deep again and come up and dive deep again. And ultimately, and I would say like a person like Tyler, I think kind of fits this mold of being polymathic, dive deep, dive deep, and then connects these things in ways that is kind of unusual and becomes this interesting advantage because it's someone who you can take a lot of ideas to and they'll be able to add something to the conversation because they've connected so many different areas in their brain. So I sort of view him as someone like that. One of the things interesting about Tyler Cowen is that he 
sets his priority almost by his inbox. He often says reading email is his business model. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you know, he gets an email and then that kind of like gets him on some sort of path, which is almost the opposite of every advice that you would give somebody. And we think about generals, we've got, you know, the historical ones, let's say Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin. In this modern economy, it does seem like it's more difficult to be a truly great generalist. Do you look at certain people in today's world and point to them as, okay, these guys, I'm putting them on a pedestal. I do think it is harder and maybe not even desirable to be like a Da Vinci style generalist at this point. But yeah, there are people I think about all the time that I sort of admire in this way. Not to say that I don't also admire some some very narrow specialists, but like you know, Zainab Tufeki, who I think is just like a brilliant writer. I have no idea how she turns out so much great content. I'm not even sure what her act I think she studied computer science, but her PhD may be in sociology of technology, but she wrote brilliantly early in the pandemic about things that people were getting wrong and just seems to be from her like reviews of the sociology of Game of Thrones to her pandemic predictions. It's just amazing. In the sports world, there's a woman named Haley Wickenheiser. I love who she was actually just last week, I think, promoted to become the first assistant general manager in the NHL. She's assistant GM for Toronto Maple Leafs. She's also recently became a general medicine doctor. And she's a four-time Olympic gold medalist in hockey and an Olympian in softball. And she's not even like very old. But some of the other people like Andre Geim, a scientist I write about in the book, who again is in the scheme of humanity is quite specialized, right? He's a physicist, but he inspired the name of my son, Andre. He likes to say he sort of changes his area of work kind of every five years as he likes to say, I don't do research. I only do search. He's the only scientist who's won both the Nobel Prize and the Ig Nobel Prize for like the year's silliest work because he's always trying sort of unexpected stuff. In film, Christopher Nolan, who says like between projects, I just have to read with no apparent goal until stuff kind of comes to me. One of my favorite novelists, Jhumpa Lahiri, who was one of the writers of a generation and gave up writing in English to go and try to learn and write in Italian just to kind of diversify her view on things. I don't know if you want me to keep throwing these people out. Like in, in the business world, a guy named Dan Siegel, I think is really interesting. He started Student Advantage, which was sort of the AARP for college students. And then he started this platform for sourcing green building materials. And then he ran a healthcare business that helped monitor patients' nervous systems during surgery. And now he's running a company that helps match doctors to needs in rural hospitals. So I don't know. I mean, obviously I have a long running list of these sorts of things because I'm interested in it. If you think of the specialist versus the generalist, the specialist in today's world also has a, a new competition with AI. How do you think AI will change the way we think about these specialists? Yeah. The model I think that I talk about a little bit in the book is like hybrid chess, writing about how when Gary Kasparov was beat by yep. Deep Blue, you know, now he'd be beat by like a free app on your phone. He noticed that computers played chess in an odd way where they were so much better at tactics, the, like the patterns that you have to memorize, which is why you actually do need to start studying chess patterns by age 12 or your chance of reaching international master status drops precipitously. It's a domain that's based on repetitive patterns, which is why it's so easy to automate. And so Kasparov then promoted these freestyle chess tournaments where humans and computers could play in any combination. And the winners weren't grandmasters or supercomputers or grandmasters with supercomputers, it was like two amateur chess players with three normal laptops. And they knew something about chess and something about algorithmic search and could kind of coach the computers. And I think that's emblematic of the fact that when you take away the sort of repetitive pattern part of the task that people like Kasparov had to spend decades learning, 
you sort of shift the skills that are needed to these much more strategic ones where I think humans still have a lot to add. And so I think when you look at certain things like areas that are really amenable to this like very early specialization of kind of repetitive practice, those are the ones that are most easily automated. In some ways, you could think of like foreign policy too. You spend years and years becoming an expert on Kazakhstan or something like that. And nowadays you get access to information so much quicker. There's Wikipedia, there's all these other things for you to learn through. Whereas before you had to suspend all this time in a library and you had to go there many times. Now you can be as sometimes more of an expert without even going. In fact, the people who didn't go there often are better at predicting it sometimes than the people who have been there. I mean, to look at the super forecasting research, small teams of super forecasters, you know, teams of a dozen of the people in that research outperformed groups of intelligence analysts by about 30% using these things called Briar scores that, and those, the intelligence analysts had access to classified information and the the predictors. Right. And many of them probably had spent time on the ground in these places. Yeah. And did not. This issue of specialists getting replaced by AI, I think like radiology is an interesting place to think about because that's a place where AI machine learning has moved in quite a bit because so much of it is about recognizing sort of repetitive things in images. Yet even in radiology, there hasn't been one radiologist that's been replaced. And I think there's some argument that some of them maybe could be, because I do think there's some evidence that AI has helped decrease false positives and false negatives. But I think it's been best when it's been like a centaur where it's partnered with those radiologists. And even if what the radiologists do now is replaced, I think they will move to that more strategic level where Part of the issue with lots of medical screening is you pick stuff up, but was it good that you picked it up? Do you want to treat it? How do you balance the outcomes you're thinking about? So I do think over time, those specialists will move to a more sort of strategic role and less of the repetitive. A great model of this that I didn't write about. I was looking back at coverage from the early 1970s when ATMs first came online in the US and it's super apocalyptic. Like 300, I think there were like 300,000 bank tellers or something at the time. They're all going to go out of business overnight. And in fact, what happened over the next 50 years, maybe that'll happen at some point, but over the next 50 years, as there were more ATMs, there were more bank tellers because they made each fewer tellers per branch, but it made each branch cheaper to operate. So more tellers overall, but it fundamentally changed the job of one from someone who was doing this like repetitive cash transaction kind of stuff to someone who's a marketing professional and a customer service rep or financial advisor, this much more like strategic, you outsource the repetitive thing. It doesn't get rid of the need, but it moves people to be like on a more strategic level of thinking. When you think of startups, which is my world, when you're hiring, let's say you're hiring your first hundred people, you're usually hiring way more generalists than specialists. But then at some point, as you kind of progress and you know where you're going for sure, then you start hiring these people who are just very, very good at one small thing and maybe don't have the range to do lots of different things. Do you see that smaller organizations benefit from generalists more than larger ones, or do you think the larger ones also can benefit as well? I think there's definitely, and I'm speculating or extrapolating a little bit from some of the team's research here, but I think there's definitely some truth to what you said, where I think what you're getting at is there's this huge literature on the so-called explore-exploit conundrum in businesses, where explore is like looking for new things or figuring out your way through trying to make something new or solving a new problem. It requires some fumbling. And then once you've like nailed it down, and this is exactly what you, we should do, then you move into this exploit mode. If you're in a scale mode. Yeah. I think there's definitely 
suggestive evidence that once you're going into exploit mode, you can silo people a lot more without some of the negative effects once you're in exploit mode. I don't think that means you don't need what Freeman Dyson would call the birds, the integrators who are looking at the frogs who are down deep in the mud and kind of integrating their knowledge and making sure that someone has sort of a view of the parts. I think that's one of the reasons probably why in this LinkedIn analysis of a half million members, they found that like the best predictor of who would become a future executive was the number of different job functions someone had worked across in an industry because they're like integrating. And I would argue that LinkedIn's product actually militates against people wanting to do that, but it still shows up in their results. So I think you still need those integrators, but I do think once you switch from explore to exploit mode, there's some benefits to some of that more siloization where some people are just locked in on a very narrow thing, as long as it doesn't get to the point where they have no connection of their work to the larger strategy at a certain point. If you make the analogy of sports, like you don't really know what sport you're playing. You need someone who's generally a good athlete, but once you know you're playing American football, like you need a punter. And you need someone who's just good at punting. And so you just, that person is incredibly important to have on your team. And then you need the people who understand how they are integrated into the larger whole. You make the case we're kind of overvaluing experts in many ways. Is that a phenomena of just our society that we're doing that? Or why is that happening? And how would society change to not overvalue experts? Yeah, I think some of this overvaluing is asking them to do things that their expertise doesn't equip them for, like making predictions, which is, I think, one of the things that we most often turn to experts for, and it's something they're poorly equipped to do. Well, it's kind of like the cancer doctor is really good at treating your cancer, but often not so good at making dietary policy for the country or something like that. And also even, I think medicine's a great example because medicine, I like to talk about a lot in part because Increasing specialization has been both inevitable and beneficial in medicine. I think it would be crazy to argue anything else. At the same time, it's been a very underrecognized double-edged sword. So like to the point where two Harvard-led studies found that if you are checked into a teaching hospital with certain cardiac conditions on the dates of a national cardiology convention, when the most esteemed interventional cardiologists are away, you're less likely to die. And these researchers concluded it's because you're less likely to sort of get procedures that specialists have gotten so used to doing that they will do it reflexively, even when they shouldn't. It's called the Einstellung effect in psychology, where you've solved a problem the same way a bunch of times, and then you'll do it even when it's not appropriate and it's very hard for you to change. Oh, I would have thought it would have been the opposite. I would have thought because they were trying these like crazy new things on you and you want just like the rote like thing at the general hospital or something. There are actually these phrases that some medical researchers have been coining in their literature to describe the compulsion to do a certain, like certain reflexes. They're giving them like Latin names. One's called the oculostenotic reflex, where you can't resist doing a certain procedure when you see a certain thing, even if the evidence has shown that it's not the right thing to do. There's a great paper called Putting the Patient Back Together Again. It's about how healthcare has become like all these really siloed experts, often treating the same person. And we break the world down into these disciplines in order to make it comprehensible. But somebody has to put the world back together again at the end of the day. Somebody has to put the patient back together again at the end of the day. So I think where we've gone wrong is... And all it's like the patient or the patient's spouse is supposed to have that role, which they may be ill-equipped for. And obviously, they're, it's very emotional. It's very tough to make those decisions. There isn't like this other person who sits on your shoulder who's going to these meetings with you to help you navigate this, the process. Totally. I mean, sometimes in some areas, you'll get something like that where doulas, for example, in childbirth, who are sort of these generalists who 
understand like rates of procedures and they understand things like if a doctor is present too long during a birth, they're probably going to do unnecessary intervention. So they should actually like leave a woman alone in the room sometimes. And when you have doulas, the rate of certain procedures plummets precipitously just because they're sort of helping figure out that risk balance in terms of the patient and their whole needs and desires and things. So I think the problem is not having the specialists, it's esteeming them at the expense of the generalists and not connecting their work so that somebody is seeing the overall picture of the patient. This is how we end up with people getting treated by multiple doctors whose remedies are in competition with one another because like nobody has a view of, of the overall picture. I know you've been critical of personalized medicine. Why are you so critical and what holds up and what doesn't hold up? Yeah. And I should say that some of this came from reading the work of people like Mike Joyner at the Mayo Clinic and Nigel Paneth, who's like the big stat head at the Mayo Clinic and Vinay Prasad, a hematologist oncologist who's been really interesting in the pandemic. And what they've sort of written is more than 20 years ago, we were promised that in a decade, we would be walking around with like our genome on a computer chip in our wallet, and we would get medical care tailored to our genome. And I think there were, optimism was a reason to believe that, I think, but also early on in the genetic revolution. Actually, let me give you sort of a personal example that I think might be illustrative of this. I was training to be a scientist in my past life and got off that track and became the science writer at Sports Illustrated specifically because I was a national level runner and I had a training partner who died, dropped dead at the end of a race. And I got really interested in sudden cardiac death in athletes and wanted to write about it. He had a single gene mutation that causes this disease. that's almost always the cause of athletes dropping dead called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HCM. Okay. So when I start learning about this, I realized in the late nineties, three different gene mutations, mutation is just means a gene variant that less than 2% of the population has three different mutations were discovered that cause any one of which causes HCM. And so then there was this sort of like celebratory attitude of we can screen everyone. Like we don't have to have athletes die ever again. And it's usually teenagers. And then some more were found and then some more. And then by 10 years later or so, you had 1400 different mutations, any one of which causes the same disease. And two thirds of those had only been discovered in a single family, so-called private mutations. So suddenly you could have tons of people with the same disease, almost none of them having the same causative mutation. And also probably most of them don't drop dead. And most of them don't drop dead. Yeah. Most don't drop dead. Most that have symptoms, it's like a much slower progression where the first symptom isn't dropping dead. And so this is a disease. This is the rare minority of diseases that is caused by one powerful mutation. Most medical issues, most of the things plaguing us today are, first of all, they have huge environmental components and they may involve millions or billions of spots on the genome. So you literally can't have a sample size large enough to detect the small effects of each of these spots on the genome, even if everyone in the world was in, in the study. And so I think there are some sort of kind of intractable issues there when it comes to claiming that we can personalize medicine based on the genome. And the optimism early was because what we were finding early was the low-hanging fruit of these single gene-caused mutations where there has been some miraculous stuff done for some of these very rare diseases that are caused by single powerful mutations. But that is the small, small minority of what people face in healthcare. And in the other areas, there's been like almost no progress. And I would say the lesson of a decade of genetics has been it's more complicated than we thought. So even in trying to personalize treatments for certain cancer, there was like a big study that tried to match people, the genetic mutations of their tumors to certain treatments. And only like 2% even got matched, much less the ones that actually worked for. 
And then you can treat a certain mutation in one cancer. And for reasons unknown to us, you treat the same mutation in a different cancer and it doesn't work anymore. So there's all kinds of stuff going on in the genome and areas of the genome. Genes are just the parts of the genome that code specifically for proteins. That's the minority of the genome. We used to call everything else junk DNA. Now we realize all that junk actually helps regulate how the genes function. So people with the same genes might have different other areas of their genome that regulate how those genes work. And so it just becomes much, much, much more complicated than we expected. Not to mention that a lot of the biggest health problems we're facing now are, I think, you know, the environmental component is larger. Like sometimes people show this graph. It's like, we're winning the war on cancer. Deaths are coming down since like 1990. But if you put the full graph up, we're not even back to 1930 yet. And basically because if we could increase exercising 5% or decrease smoking rates 5%, you'd have a bigger impact on mortality than like all the rest of healthcare, basically. What's your kind of non-obvious advice to getting people to live longer and healthier, obviously get a little bit more exercise, don't smoke, get some sleep, eat a few vegetables. What are the non-obvious things that we should be thinking about? Yeah. I mean, the obvious stuff is the best, <laughs> getting, getting more moving around. I would say even if you're not doing the exercise, I would try to have more like weight bearing on your legs during the day. Standing desk. I'm standing right now. I'm on like a leaning stool where I have weight on my legs, but I'm sort of like it's propped along, you know, under me because there's this research showing that when you stop weight bearing on your legs at all, this enzyme called lipoprotein lipase that sweeps fat out of your bloodstream basically goes to sleep. And you don't want that for a long period of time. Like it's almost like as, you know, bad as smoking. So like, don't be sitting more than a few hours at a time type of thing or. Yeah. I mean, at least try to get up, you know, and get some weight bearing on your legs. And I think in, from a non-obvious standpoint, I mean, I think those are somewhat obvious. I would say if you had to pick between having a good diet or exercising, I would go with exercising and bad diet. If you had to pick, you don't have to pick, but exercising will inoculate you from some of the bad things of a bad diet. Great. So just like chocolate cake diet, but make sure you're exercising a lot type of thing. I mean, don't, but if you had to pick one, Yes. you know, Or if you had to start somewhere, but I would say also movement diversity. There's a guy who's great on this called Kelly Starrett, who maybe some people have read Becoming a Supple Leopard, his book. If you're going to bend down to get something, go into a squat to get it. Try to add some movement diversity to your life. And I think that's not only good for sort of maintaining some of your skills, but I think there's some suggestive evidence that when you- So just like when you're just like walking around, just start dancing and stuff. Oh, dancing, dancing. Great. But like, literally when I pick something up now, I go into like a catcher's squat. So I think there's evidence that one, that's, that's good for you in a number of ways, but also that if you stop, totally stop using certain parts of the range of motion of your joints, you become like a lot more likely to get conditions like arthritis and pain in those joints and things. And this is somewhat of the idea of these CrossFit or these dynamic motion type of workouts and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think CrossFit to some degree its success is the popularization of what endurance athletes have known for a century, which is getting people to do intervals, getting them interested in doing high intensity intervals. But yeah, I think this movement diversity is really important. And I think you can, Kelly's going to have another book coming out about this, but I think you can work this into your day without being too crazy. Just change the normal motions you use for doing normal things when you can. And yeah, dance, definitely dance is great. Lots of range of motion. Now we talked about quitting before and, and you seem to be an advocate for knowing when to quit and pursuing something else. How do you know when to do that? Because there's definitely a compounding that happens when you don't quit, but then there's also a benefit to quitting. So what's the heuristic to know when to do it and when not to? Yeah, I think that's a tough question. And I don't think there's a perfect answer, but I think people tend to be so bad at it that even being a little better 
at quitting at the right time becomes a competitive advantage. And I should say, I just blurbed a book that's coming out by Annie Duke, the poker player and, and decision scientist called Quit. And the whole book is about trying to be like a little bit smarter at your quitting. And so I highly recommend this. And some of the things she recommends are things like looking at the sunk cost fallacy, right? People will stay doing something that they wouldn't have done objectively before just because they've invested some time in it. So this is like how con men work is they know to start asking for sort of small things first, because once they get you giving something, they'll, they'll get you giving more. And so she says, it also could become part of your identity, right? So then it's harder to quit as well. Totally. And she writes about this also is trying to have an identity that's broader than just that thing you're doing so that it's easier for you to quit and not say like, I'm nothing and nobody. So like having more stuff going on again, that like network of enterprise, but she also talks about, and I think she quoted Kahneman on this, having people in your life who love you, but don't care at all about your feelings that you can like bounce ideas off. I don't know if that those people kind of exist, but yeah. They're hard to find those people. Yeah. Unless all your friends have Asperger's or something. Like, I think it's hard to have those people in your life. But she also talks about, and Seth Godin has talked about this, like having certain criteria before you start that says, this is a deal breaker or, or this is a benchmark that I need to look at and stick to, which is sort of ahead of time before you're sort of in the middle of that situation. And he also, she likened actually getting something out quickly so you can get some feedback and understand if you should quit that direction and turn. So sort of making these smaller experiments so that you can get feedback and pivot. If you're going to write a book, first do a series of tweets, then do some blogs, then do a longer form article, and then do the book kind of thing. Totally, totally, totally. So you can get some feedback and say, it doesn't mean you're quitting, but it's pivoting. And also, I remember one of the things that made an impression on me in the book was she talked about thinking in expected value. There was some woman she was working with who had a good job, but, but really didn't like it. And something totally out of left field came up and she's like, should I take this? And she's kind of like, I don't think so. Cause we usually like sort of default to stability. She mentions all this research in the book that shows that if you feel like you quit at the right time, you definitely quit too late basically. And so this woman, she was trying to get her to think in expected value and saying, okay, if you stick with what you have now, what's the probability that you'll be unhappy in a year? And the woman was like, oh, a hundred percent and decided to jump. If you think about it in life, the things that we really don't quit are often the things that give us the most fulfillment. First of all, it's hard to quit being a parent or even marriage. Marriage can be tough sometimes. If we don't quit, it actually has a lot of value and fulfillment to us. How do we square those two? I also think an underlying point to what you're getting at is when people only focus on happiness, which I just mentioned as a dependent variable, I think there are other things that matter. I also wrote a book, I think coming out soon by Russ Roberts about this, that Meaning is important. Some of the most meaningful projects to me in my life were running the 800 meters when I was a competitive runner and writing a book. And those things were like torture in the middle. I mean, nobody's in the middle of the 800. I love doing this, <laughs> but it's a very compelling thing to do, to be involved with. And I think something that I take to heart and that encompasses some of the habits of mind that Annie talks about is it's called self-regulatory learning, which is basically means like thinking about your own thinking and having a system for that, where when you do something, having a system to reflect back on it. When I was trying to write a first book, one of the scientists who studies this gave me a series of questions to ask myself every month and journal about, which was, what am I trying to do? Why am I trying to do it? Am I sure I want to do it? What do I need to learn to be able to do it? Who do I need to help me in order to learn those things? What met and didn't meet my expectations? And you know what did I learn about my strengths and weaknesses? And at first I was like, I'll answer these the same every month. And I never answered them the same twice. And it turns out that there's this literature showing that 
we actually should give people time, even at work, even if it's a little for reflection, because we don't learn as much about our abilities and interests and where we should pivot if we don't actually do systematic reflection. And the people that do it end up finding their way to their own talents. And I think talent matching is extremely important. So I think having a habit like that, some people just do it intuitively, but most people don't, can really help you make lots of small updates with whatever you're involved in. It doesn't mean like get out of my marriage now, but the research on marriage counseling shows that when couples go to counseling, it's usually six years after they should have started going, six years after. So I think if you're doing this constant metacognition, you can make small updates, which by the way, is one of the hallmarks of the super forecasters. They make many frequent small updates, whereas the poor forecasters make a small number of giant ones. Yep. They're penduluming really big, right? Yeah. And so I think having that systematic practice of reflection can sort of help you in these, taking these like small steps in a smart way and, and opportunistic pivots that don't feel like unmanageable. Now, back to the medical side, you have some strong opinions around medical testing and getting tested for things. And you know, I'm someone who's certainly gotten lots of different genetic tests for cancer screening and full body scan and all this other stuff. But I think you often give the advice, this is a bad idea. Why is it a bad idea? Yeah. This is why I thought that Theranos would have been worse if it actually had worked because we probably would have massively exacerbated our epidemic of overtesting, where we have a huge amount of treatment right now that's low value. And some of the places, and a, a great book, by the way, to read about some of this called Ending Medical Reversal by Vinay Prasad, the hematologist oncologist I mentioned, and Adam Sifu, a general medicine doctor. Take something like prostate screening, for example. The reason that the recommendations in recent years and breast cancer screening have went from like everyone getting it early to saying like, actually wait until you're a little older is because it picks up a bunch of cases that will never harm anyone. And so you get this, you screen like a huge population. And when you zoom out and look at those populations, you get a small decrease of a screened population in death from prostate cancer, but no decrease in overall mortality and sometimes even an increase. Because they're getting death from being in the hospital and getting treated for random things and stuff. Presumably something. When we actually, and not to mention that having your prostate removed unnecessarily has all kinds of other implications, but when you zoom out and look at the bigger picture of, does this get the ultimate outcome that we care about? It often doesn't. And so I think there are a couple of problems and even worse to make it even more difficult to grapple with and counterintuitive survival rates of prostate cancer look like they get better when you screen a big population. But really what you're doing is detecting many more cases that nobody would ever think about unless they live to like 130. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. And so you get this artificial benefit. And I think the problems- So like juices the stats essentially. Yeah. The problems are you're picking up a lot of things. You might save one, someone from certain things, but overall you just empirically don't see that benefit. And I think a lot of screening also is based on so-called surrogate markers, which is you're testing for a proxy of the thing you actually care about. And you are- a Right, like elevated- X in your blood or something like that. Let's take blood pressure. There was basically a Nobel Prize awarded for the discovery that led to a blood pressure drug called atenolol, which is still one of the most common blood pressure drugs prescribed in the United States. And atenolol was shown to be really good at lowering people's blood pressure. But what you actually care about is, are you decreasing people's risk of dying from heart attack or stroke? And it turned out that it didn't. They just died at the same rates with lower blood pressure numbers. Now, there are other drugs that lower blood pressure and get that benefit, but it's kind of this example of We've assumed that these surrogate markers are proxies for what we care about, and they often aren't. And this is actually where I think 
sometimes when I've had interactions talking about this stuff with really smart tech people who are like, you know, interested in this stuff, that their intuition can lead them a little bit astray because because they're doing like glucose monitoring and all these other things, which might be good, but not always the right thing. And I think they've built stuff, right? They've built stuff that works and view the human body as something similar where like we didn't design the human body. There's a ton of stuff that's still unscrutable to us. Some stuff isn't perfectly designed. And we just like do things that are so-called bioplausible that turn out to make all the sense in the world, but yet don't work when you actually like zoom out and look at it empirically. <laughs> that's a really hard thing to like internalize. All right, a couple of questions about your personal questions. You were a super competitive runner at Columbia, and and I'm sure that kind of gave you an edge in sports journalism. What is something that most sports writers get wrong about their coverage? I had this saying in my first book, The Sports Gene, I opened the book. The first chapter is about why Major League Baseball hitters can't hit softball pitchers. This woman named Jenny Finch had a TV show where she would go around and strike them out. And I was confused by this. I'm like, if they have reflexes fast enough to hit 100 mile per hour fastball, why can't they hit a 60 mile per hour softball? Albeit coming from about 17 feet closer, but the transit time is even longer because the ball's so much slower. And it turns out that they don't have faster reflexes than normal. It's actually that they've learned through practice to pick up on body signatures, like the rotation of a torso and the angle of a forearm. And they group it into what's called a chunk, a signal that says ball's going here or there in the future, swing or don't swing as soon as the ball is released and the flicker of the pitch, which is the flashing pattern, the seams of the ball make. And when they're faced with an underhand pitcher whose their torso movements and shoulder rotation is totally different, they're stripped of this learned perceptual skill that allow them to predict the future. But they don't understand that. So sports writers often go and they'll ask athletes how they did what they did. And the athlete will give an explanation and they are poorly positioned for most things to explain how they did it because it has to be totally automated in their brain. They have no idea. Like in quarterbacks, sometimes you ask them what they're looking at and they'll say this and this and this. If you put eye tracking glasses on them and see, it's not what they say. They'll say like, I was looking at this guy or whatever. The tracking glasses show that expert quarterbacks actually look at spaces between players that help them get a sense of what's going to develop in the future. And so I had this saying for sports writing that I tried to impress on some of my colleagues that just because you're a bird doesn't mean you're an ornithologist, that just because these people can fly doesn't mean that they're going to be able to give you the explanation for what they did. It doesn't mean that there's not good things to take from them, but if you want to understand the perceptual skills, they are very poorly positioned to tell you. Well, they often can't explain to other people. They can't teach other people. Often the very best players really are terrible coaches. I don't know. I'd probably not benefit from a tennis lesson with Roger Federer. It'd be fun, but I'd rather just have the local pro probably give me a tennis lesson. You'd benefit from the selfies socially, but maybe not in tennis. And this goes beyond sports, by the way. There was a guy named Hyman Bass who won the National Science Medal. He developed K-theory and algebra. You know, he's a great mathematician and did this research where he gave world-class mathematicians and really good math teachers a problem that kids had gone wrong on. Like It was like 49 times five or something and asked, where did these kids go wrong? The mathematicians couldn't figure it out. Whereas the best teachers were able to sort of reverse engineer like, oh, it's because they think this about the order of operations and it's wrong, this common misconception. When I took physics in college, I, I took it from a few Nobel laureates and the Nobel laureates were by far terrible at teaching, but maybe the average TA was actually pretty good. Yeah. It's a different thing. And I think for those Nobel laureates, it's like when Michael Jordan tried drafted and tried to coach Kwame Brown. 
he is the person farthest in the world from understanding how those basic skills develop now. That's all totally automated in his brain from so, so long ago. And I think teaching is a different thing. Not to say they can't learn to do it, but like in Hyman Bass's work, it was confusing to the mathematicians why they weren't as good at the teachers who they were obviously way, way better at math then. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice is generally bad advice? I think this is going to sound terrible, but I think the advice you can be anything you want is generally bad advice. I think to the extent it means that you can be the person that you want to be personally, I think that's nice. But I think there's evidence that finding through experience what your talents are and matching to those is so important for your performance, your feeling of like resisting burnout, that we should be more about orienting people toward a trial and error experience of finding out where you fit and like what you're good at, as opposed to just saying like, be whatever you want. And isn't that kind of like what the work world is? You have a bunch of different jobs and you're getting, you know, kudos in one versus the other and you do more of that or something. To some degree, although I think sometimes actually that can hold people back from some things if they get too much kudos and then they just stick and do that one thing. I started at Sports Illustrated as a temp fact checker and noticed if you do really well at fact checking, you're probably going to get stuck there. So like, <laughs> the people who move on are the ones who start shirking the thing they're supposed to be doing, basically. <laughs> that was me and Pablo Torre, who's now like a star at ESPN. I think it's a good expression to tell people they shouldn't feel limited. But I also think it's really important to try to calibrate sensitively to what your talents are, because talent is a very real thing and it's, and it's an important thing to match with. Okay. This has been awesome. All right. David Epstein, I follow you on Twitter at David Epstein. Is that the best place for our audience to engage with you? I have a free newsletter now at davidepstein.bulletin.com where sometimes I just write about random things, but sometimes I criticize either poor research or poor science journalism. So yeah. Okay. I'm definitely going to subscribe to that as well. That sounds really cool. This has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us at World of Das. It's a pleasure, Oren. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.